You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, getting ready for some Sunday baseball. Uh, Mets a little later than usual today as they'll look to uh, really put a stranglehold on the National League East, which they can do. Jacob deGrom goes to the mound this afternoon. His first start at City Field since July 7th of 2021 and a chance to take four out of five in this massive five-game weekend series against the Atlanta Braves. The Mets five and a half games in first place right now in the National League East. A different story for the Yankees this afternoon. A 2-15 start for the Yanks in St. Louis trying to stop their four-game losing streak and also trying to avoid a three-game sweep at the hands of the Cardinals. The Yankees will have Frankie Montas making his Yankee debut against Adam Wainwright, 40-year-old Adam Wainwright, pitching to a 3.11 earned run average. Uh, We'll get back to the phones in just a second, 1-800-919-3776. Just to illustrate the importance of this Mets-Braves divisional race and this five-game weekend series, there's a third wildcard team that was added to each league this year. So the top two division winners in each league, the American and the National League, they get buys into the league division series. So in the National League right now, it's going to be the Dodgers, and it's likely going to be the winner of the National League East, which right now looks like it's going to be the Mets. And then if you stack the teams from there, there'll be six teams in the playoffs. The third division winning team, which after beating the Yankees last night, is now the St. Louis Cardinals. They would be the number three seed. The number four seed is Atlanta. The number five seed is San Diego. And the number six seed, by the way, are the Phillies. The Phillies have won nine of their last ten. They're on a four-game winning streak, and if the season ended today, the Philadelphia Phillies would be in the playoffs. Now, those four teams, three, four, five, and six, they will play best two out of three series, the two winners joining right now the Mets and the Dodgers in the NLDS round. So the difference between winning the National League East and finishing second in the National League East based on current records is this. Where the Mets are right now, they get a bye into the NLDS. If they finish second place, which is where the Braves are right now, they would have to play the San Diego Padres in a best two out of three opening round series just to get to the NLDS. That is an enormous difference. That's why the emphasis has been, that's why things got really dicey and really scary about a month ago when Atlanta was coming on hard and coming on hard and coming on hard, and they got to within one half game of the Mets for first place in the division. The Mets held them off. They have slowly built that lead back up to the point where it's five and a half games right now with DeGrom on the mound today, a chance to push the lead to six and a half games in the National League East with two months to go in the regular season. This has been a massive five-game series so far. Worst-case scenario... The Mets are four and a half games up, but six and a half sounds so much better. It sounds so much more comfortable. And then you have to realize and factor in that the Mets right now are as good as they've been all season long, assuming, knock on wood, continued health for Jacob DeGrom. All right, 1-800-919-3776. Kenny's been waiting in Saddle River and checks in now. Kenny, how you doing? I am doing great. How are you? I'm good, thanks. What's going on? Um, I was at the green and white scrimmage last night, and I'm a uh, very loyal, diehard Jet fan. And I was there last year, and I just wanted to compare the two. 
Yeah, great. When we went last year, it was a lot more crowded. We had just uh, drafted Zach Wilson, and we left extremely depressed. I don't know if anyone remembers, but Zach Wilson, they couldn't even get a first down the entire scrimmage. It was very depressing, and as I was thinking back about it, the Jets' defense turned out to be the worst defense in the league last year, so it was even more unimpressive. But yesterday, uh, they looked pretty good. So, as usual, the optimistic Jet fan, I thought Zach looked good. I thought Brees Hall looked very quick. I don't know. I'm very optimistic. Uh, Barrios was great. Everyone just seems to be, uh, I don't want to say healthy, because that's a bad thing to say, but just uh, really coming together. So I just wanted to see if anyone else had any similar thoughts. Well, I think you're spot on with your analysis. I appreciate the call. And, and look, we don't have a lot to, um, you know, base Zach Wilson's comparison on until we actually get to see him on the field. There's a Jets fan, optimistic Jets fan, which, by the way, you do not have to apologize for being optimistic. I mean, sports are supposed to be fun. What's the point of being a diehard sports fan if you're not going to be optimistic about your team? So please... Do not apologize for that. I'm optimistic about all New York teams. I want them all to do well. I mean, it's my job to point out their shortcomings when they're not doing well, and that happens quite often. But that's a good take. I hope that's true. I do remember that green and white scrimmage last year. It was a disaster. Um, the Jets' defense, by the way, if you're com- uh, comparing last year to this year, yeah, they were awful last season. The defense on paper looks a lot stronger this year as well. In fact, that's what Robert Sala on DPHO and Rothenberg on Friday was asked about. He spoke on his defense, which is his specialty, improving this year. We feel it's going to be better, and it was difficult. You know, we had – there was a four-game stretch where we came off the bye and we played New England, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and Buffalo, and it's – probably the worst four-game stretch in, that I've ever seen in my life and arguably one of the worst four-game stretches in the history of football. And it set us back so far that statistically we could never get out of the hole. And um, obviously, I'm you know, half class half full. I felt like we were better than what that, that, that uh, ranking was. But as Bill Parcells once said, you are what, you are what your record mm-hmm. says, you are what your ranking says, and, and all of it. So um, we did add some really cool pieces, got the safety group solidified. You know, we're, I think we've started 10 different safeties a year ago and, um, uh, hopefully Carl, uh, getting Carl back and adding Jermaine and, uh, adding Solomon Thomas and adding to that group. I, I just, we do feel like we got a, got potential to be pretty cool on defense. It's just a matter again, a lot of new faces on that side of the ball. It's about gelling, using this training camp to find a way to grow together. And, um, it's going to be fun to watch that group too. It's going to be fast. Those four games that Salah referenced last year coming out of the bye week, they really did lose their way. Jets went into the bye week last year 1-4. and four. Their only win was that overtime win against Tennessee. Then they have the bye week after week five. They come back to play New England for the second time in the first six games of the season. And the defense in those next four games gave up 54, 31, 45, and 45 points. So he's right. His point about that's too deep of a hole to dig yourself out of statistically, it's 100% right. By the way, they managed to win one of those four games because on Halloween when they gave up 31 points, they scored 34 in the Mike White game against the Cincinnati Bengals. So not only did they manage to win one of those four awful defensive games, but it was a win with a backup quarterback against a team that went to the Super Bowl. 
So go figure. And then they started getting better towards the end of the season. Great? Absolutely not. But you go into the bye week one and four. You come out of the bye week. Zach Wilson wasn't playing. Um, you know, Mike White's your quarterback then, and that was before he became international superstar Mike White. It was a very tough spot. And that was a, a, a very, very difficult four-game stretch for the Jets. They came out of it two and seven. They started the season two and eight, and it really didn't get much better than that for the remainder of the season. You need to see improvement this year. The on paper, the both sides of the football are vastly improved. Again, the point I made last hour, the one position where you're not 100% confident there's going to be improvement is at quarterback. Now, you hope with the improved offensive line and the improved weapons at the skill positions around Zach Wilson, that can lead to a big leap, a big leap in year number two. I want to go back to where the Yankees are right now. We had Brendan Cuddy on from NJ.com checking in from St. Louis last hour. Yankees have lost four in a row. They've lost their way a little bit. They still have a 10.5 game lead atop the American League East. Um, it's hard not to do a side-by-side comparison. Well, in, in New York, we have the luxury of having two teams in every sport. So it is hard not to do a side-by-side comparison Regardless of the sport, the Giants and the Jets have both been bad for a lot of years. So it's hard not to do a side-by-side comparison even right now. Well, which team is in better position to improve? Personally, I think it's the Jets. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Um, Baseball, you have both baseball teams as a whole having phenomenal seasons. They're both in first place right now. It is August 7th. There are two months left in the regular season, and New York has two first-place baseball teams. One of them, the Mets, are playing their best baseball of the season. The Yankees, like I said, have lost their way. They've lost their mojo a little bit in recent weeks. These teams are both going to be in the playoffs. Right now, they would both, and I pointed out the Mets scenario earlier as far as getting a bye if they win the division into the and LDS along with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yankees are in the exact same position right now. The Yankees and the Houston Astros would skip over that best out of three first round scenario and go right into the ALDS. And and barring a collapse of unbelievable proportions, the Yankees will absolutely be in the ALDS because they have a 10 and a half game lead for their division. And the winner of the American League Central is not going to catch them either. So that's the situation. So you have to start looking at these two teams as playoff teams. And what do they look like in the postseason? And Garrett Cole, and to a lesser extent, Clay Holmes. But Cole is the biggest issue for the Yankees right now. And if you look at what the Yankees have invested in Garrett Cole, they signed him, this is year three, of a nine-year, $324 million contract. $36 million a year. The $324 million, a record long-term contract for a starting pitcher when he signed it before the 2020 season. Now, he's not going to see all 324 of that because the 2020 season was chopped from 162 to 60 games because of the COVID pandemic. But still, the contract that he signed at the time was a record for a starting pitcher. Max Scherzer this offseason also signed a record contract for a starting pitcher, but his was different. He signed a record for highest annual value of $43.3 million. 
So let's look at the two aces in New York right now. Garrett Cole in the Bronx, Max Scherzer in Queens. Cole is making $36 million this season. Scherzer is making $43.3 million this season. Who would you rather have start a playoff series on the mound for your team, Cole or Scherzer? I don't think there's any scenario in which you would want Garrett Cole over Max Scherzer right now. So that's the here and now. Okay, so you're paying $7 million extra for Scherzer this year, and he's better this year. If you're a Yankee fan, you're like, okay, well, you're paying more for him this year. After this season, the Yankees have to pay Garrett Cole $36 million for six more years. Six seasons at $36 million a year for a total of $216 million following this season. And frankly, you really haven't gotten the bang for your buck yet. Had Christy Ackert on the program yesterday, covers the Yankees for the New York Daily News, and she made an astute comment that she's never seen a quote-unquote ace pitcher like Garrett Cole, and I think we all see him as an ace, both in his pedigree, his statistics, and his contract. He's paid like an ace, he's treated like an ace, he acts like an ace, he's supposed to be an ace. And she made the comment that she's never seen an ace pitcher with body language like him on the field. Like, how many times have we seen Garrett Cole? Let's list the red flags about Garrett Cole. You know, you go back to the beginning of the season with the opening day against Boston and him giving up three runs in the first inning. And afterwards saying that his timing was thrown off because the Yankees had a little girl sing the Ukrainian national anthem to show support for Ukraine in their war against Russia. The issue with the, I mean, Garrett Cole has been the poster child for pitchers using sticky substances. His current teammate, Josh Donaldson, outed him last year as the face of that controversy. Ever since that has that rule has been implemented in Major League Baseball where pitchers get checked as they come off the mound, Cole's performance has not been the same. He expressed concern over the horn that the Yankees operations department plays when there's two strikes, that loud foghorn that they play to get the crowd fired up when a Yankee pitcher has two strikes on a batter. He didn't like that. He gives up home runs. He throws his hands in the air. I mean, I've seen that on my eight-year-old travel baseball team this summer. Pitcher gives up a hit into the gap. The eight-year-old on my team throws his hands up in the air. Pitcher on my team, by the way, not making $36 million. And then in the recent game afterwards against the Red Sox, when Rafael Devers, who has owned him lately, and Cole once again has to get in front of the media and answer what happened, making the comment, well, if anybody here has any suggestions, I'm all ears. Really? Can you imagine? And Max has had bad games. And it's fair to compare Cole to Scherzer. They both signed record-setting contracts. They're both aces. They both pitch in New York. They both have extremely high expectations. Can you imagine Max Scherzer coming into the uh, clubhouse after the game, speaking with the media after a really rough outing and saying, yeah, you know what? If any of you have uh, suggestions, I'm all ears. Can you imagine that? Just so the body language, some of the comments, some of the things that seem to bother Cole – These are all red flags for a guy who's supposed to be the most important player on your team. Cole single-handedly derailed last year's season.
by not giving them a chance to win the playoff game in Fenway Park. Now, if you look at that Yankees team, I don't think they were in it for the long haul anyway. That was such a flawed team. It was such a frustrating season. Should they have beaten the Red Sox at Fenway Park? All right, let's say they do and they advance. I don't know how far the Yankees were going to go last year. Would they have beaten Tampa Bay? They probably wouldn't have. But the fact is he didn't give them a chance, and that's his job. That's his job and his job alone. And it's going to be interesting. Like, we'll see how Montas pitches for the Yankees. If Montas is lights out from here to the end of the season, is he your number one starter in the playoffs? I mean, I got to be honest with you right now. I would much rather have the ball in Nestor Cortez's hands to start a playoff series or in a big spot than Garrett Coles. There's no question about that in my mind because uh, Cortez, he just seems stronger mentally to be able to battle adversity and get through trouble spots in a game. You know, Cole throws a bad pitch, and it seems to unravel from there. Cortez is not the talented pitcher that Garrett Cole is, but it's not all about talent and arm strength and stuff. Now, I don't think that's going to happen for a couple of reasons. Namely, I think the Yankees are really leery of the innings that are already on Nestor Cortez. But right now, Yankees need to win, and you give me the choice between Nestor Cortez and Garrett Cole on equal rest... I'm going Nestor Cortez, but let's take it a step further because I've made this comparison several times in recent weeks. Let's compare the guy who the Yankees have at the top of their rotation to the guy who the Mets have at the top of their rotation, and you tell me who's the better investment. Cole and Scherzer. This year, Cole makes 36. Scherzer makes $43 million. Next year, same thing. $36 million for Cole, $43 million for Max. Year after that, same thing. $36 million for Cole, $43 million for Max. After that, Max is off the books. His contract is expired in Queens. The Yankees, at that point, still have to pay Garrett Cole $36 million a year for three years. $108 million is owed to Garrett Cole beyond the time that Max Scherzer's contract expires. So you tell me, yes, you're paying more per year for Max Scherzer, but first of all, you'd much rather have that guy on the mound in a big game than the guy the Yankees have. And secondly, when Scherzer's contract is done and he'll be 40 years old at that, that season, you still owe Cole $108 million over three years. Yankees starting lineup is out. Let's see. DJ leading off at first base today. So once again, no Anthony Rizzo. Judge is in right field. Carpenter's your DH batting third. Donaldson, who has hit well lately, is in the cleanup spot at third base. Glaber's batting fifth at second. Ben Attendi, who is two for 25 as a Yankee, bats sixth in left field. Aaron Hicks, who hasn't had a base hit, I think, since July 4th, is batting seventh in center field. Jose Trevino is behind the plate, and Marwin Gonzalez is playing short today and batting ninth. So no Isaiah, Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, uh, no Anthony Rizzo either for the Yankees against Adam Wainwright and the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, Mets don't play till uh, 4.15, so I don't expect their lineup to be released before we get off the air here at noon. <laughs> 
So again, the Yankees lineup today, 2-15 in St. Louis, trying to avoid the three-game sweep and snap their four-game losing streak. LeMayhew, Judge, Carpenter, Donaldson, Torres, Benatendi, Hicks, Trevino, and Gonzalez. Kiner Falefa gets the day off, and Anthony Rizzo will miss the third game of this weekend series once again with a back issue. A couple of interesting things uh, on Twitter that I'm noticing. MLB Communications uh, tweeted this out, that Saturday's games drew 596,775 fans. That is the largest one-day total for Major League Baseball since the 2019 traditional opening day. The average crowd of yesterday's games was 35,104. Not to throw cold water on an impressive number like that, but the Mets and Braves did play a split admission doubleheader at City Field, a battle for first place in the National League East between two marquee franchises in the biggest market in the Major League Baseball had something to do with it. Still, it's impressive. Uh, this about 45 minutes ago from Pat Leonard, who covers the Giants for the New York Daily News, tweets this out. Giants left tackle Andrew Thomas is limping after an 11-on-11 run period. He was on the ground with Kayvon Thibodeau after one block and nearly had Leonard Williams roll up on him on another. Thomas is up and around watching the second team, but something to watch closely with his ankle. So we will watch that closely with Andrew Thomas. Andrew Thomas proved last year after a tough entry into the NFL, and he was in a tough spot because there were four Offensive tackles drafted among the top 13 picks in 2020. Andrew Thomas was the first of those four selected. And another one selected plays in the same stadium as he does. And Mekhi Becton was a lot better his rookie year than Andrew Thomas was. Um, That was a tough spot for Andrew Thomas. He did not play particularly well. And you talk about improvement all the time. And it's not just about Zach Wilson. And it's not just about Daniel Jones. And it's not just about... Elijah Moore, it's about all players. And you want to see improvement and progression from year to year. Well, Thomas showed that last year. The one thing that held him back last season was he got injured. And he wasn't able to be on the field and in the lineup consistently. But when he was, he was very good to the point where the Giants feel comfortable with him at left tackle, Evan Neal at right tackle heading into the season. All of it designed to protect Daniel Jones. And on paper, and I've asked Jordan Renan about this, and I asked Connor Rogers about this, guys who cover the NFL and are out there at camps and watching these teams, and admittedly, the bar is set extremely low when you're talking about the Giants and their offensive line. But on paper, as you look at the Giants' offensive line right now, this is the best unit that Daniel Jones has played behind. So you hope that they can continue to progress and get better and give him the protection that he needs. The other part of this for Jones, probably, let's not say probably because the bar was set pretty low here coming off of Jason Garrett and Freddie Kitchens, it's got to be the most creative offense that Daniel Jones has had the opportunity to orchestrate. Garrett's offense was not creative at all. Uh, Freddie Kitchens added very little after the Giants let Jason Garrett go. Now you have Dayball. You see his track record in Buffalo. How much of that was Josh Allen? How much of that was Dayball? It's somewhere in between. Allen, I'm just going to say this, wasn't a superstar coming out of college. He took some lumps. He took some growing pains, and he grew into that offense. Now, the difference here, Allen was a rookie in 2018 and had time to grow within that offense, 
whereas Daniel Jones is now in year number four. They did not pick up his fifth-year option, so he's not going to have that same luxury. So the hope from the Giants' perspective, for Giants fans anyway, who want Daniel Jones to continue as their quarterback beyond this year, and I don't know how many of you are out there like that, but the hope is that between the improved offensive line, the best one that he's had the chance to play behind, and the opportunity to play in Brian Dable's offense, you will see a significant improvement and progression for Jones this season. Jones spoke about getting more comfortable in Dable's offense. Yeah, I'm getting more comfortable every day, I think. Um, you know, we're, we're still uh, early in the process. We've got a lot of work to do. I, you know, I think um, that's certainly my mind, mindset. I think that's Coach Dayball's mindset and, and the whole you know, group's mindset is we've got a lot of work to do and, and we're eager to do it. So uh, I'm comfortable and, and continuing to uh, work to get more comfortable. Now, how about Kadarius Toney? Now, you look at his rookie season, didn't get on the field right away. Uh, week one, two receptions, negative two yards. Week two, uh, nothing. Week three, two catches, 16 yards. Week four, which was the best game all season long for the entire team, they had everybody available. They were in New Orleans against a quality opponent. They had to come from behind. Barkley played. Kadarius Toney played, Daniel Jones played, Kenny Galladay played, they had everybody. That was the if 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 you're the optimistic Giants fan and you're looking at the potential of what this team could be, you look at that New Orleans game last year, October 3rd, week four, the 27-21 overtime win over the Saints. In that game, Kadarius Toney, six catches, 78 yards. And then following that was the Dallas game. And anybody who watched the Giants last year, there's so little to hang your hat on. All you got to do when you're talking about Kadarius Toney is say the Dallas game. Ten catches, 189 yards. They couldn't cover him. He was targeted 13 times. He caught 10 balls. The Dallas Cowboys, a first-place team at the time, could not cover Kadarius Toney. In that game, you got the whole Kadarius Toney experience. You had that, and then he didn't finish the game. He got thrown out for throwing a punch. But here's Daniel Jones on his enigmatic second-year wide receiver out of Florida. I mean, I think KT's done a done a great job, um, you know, coming in and and uh, you know picking up on the offense, learning the scheme, you know, um, you know playing different positions and and uh, you know bringing what he does well to the table. He's a dangerous guy with the ball in his hands, and and uh, you know we got to find ways to to get him the ball. So. Um, you know, he, he's an extremely talented player and, and uh, brings a special dimension to our offense. So that's Tony. Uh, brings something to the Giants offense, frankly, that nobody else on the roster has the capability of doing. The other thing that you remember about that New Orleans game last year, and this is when you know things are bad, right? When you're trying to point to positives from last season for your football team, in this case we're talking about the New York Giants, you're literally pointing to one game. But the biggest game last year for Saquon Barkley was also that New Orleans game where he carried the ball 13 times for 52 yards, including the walk-off touchdown in overtime. He had five receptions for 74 yards, including a 54-yard touchdown reception during the Giants' comeback last season. Now Barkley, just like Daniel Jones, has everything to play for this year as he looks to secure his spot on this team beyond this season he's now nearly two full years removed from tearing his ACL and like Daniel Jones Saquon Barkley is running behind the best offensive line that he ever has in the NFL remember Barkley's 
first year where he was phenomenal, his second year where he was pretty good. He was running for his life every single game. He ran for what? Whatever he ran for as a rookie, 1,300 yards, whatever it was, a normal running back would have run for about 800 yards that season. He ran for 1,000 yards his second season. That's only because he was running for his life, and he was so elusive, and he was so talented. And unfortunately for Barkley, that has changed since the ACL injury. Well, what can help him be more productive? A stronger offensive line, especially the humongous right tackle, the seventh overall pick in the draft, Evan Neal, out of Alabama. So how excited is Saquon to be able to run behind Evan Neal? I'm excited to play not only behind him, but the, the offensive line and, and get to work with, continue to work with Bobby and all the offensive guys. Uh, Evan's been doing a great job um, coming to work every single day. He's a freak. Um, his athletic ability is insane um, and how big he is. You know, he, he, when he walks in the room, you notice when he walks in the room. Uh, but like, like I said, every single, for all of us, every single day, we just got to keep proving, keep getting better. And, you know, I really think, you know, the, he can have a great future, but we just got to keep main thing, the main thing, and keep focus on brick by brick and day by day. 1,307 rushing yards started all 16 games as a rookie, led the NFL with 2,028 yards from scrimmage, and his second season, when he missed three games, he still rushed for 1,003 yards and had 1,441 yards from scrimmage. Third year, tears his ACL in week two, and then last year, not nearly the explosiveness that we had seen from Saquon Barkley his first two seasons. Take a break. We'll get your calls going on the Giants and more when we come back at 1-800-919-3776. Some thoughts on the Giants defense and some more thoughts on Daniel Jones. Giants preseason opener is Thursday night. We finally get to see these guys in action as well. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. All right, got another 20 minutes or so here. Larry Hardesty will take over at noon and take you through the afternoon here on 98.7 ESPN New York. All season long, listen to us here at 98.7 for ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball, brought to you by Nissan. You deserve a car that thrills you, and Nissan's got an exciting full line that'll put goosebumps on your goosebumps. Experience the thrill for yourself. Shop your local Nissan store and NissanUSA.com today. Next two weeks, really enticing Sunday night baseball matchups here on ESPN New York. You have the Dodgers and the Padres tonight. And then next Sunday, a familiar matchup to some, the Yankees and the Boston Red Sox from Fenway Park. couple more notes on the Giants. I think, though, for all the talk about the offense, and you want to obviously see improvement in all aspects of the team. At the beginning of the season, the Giants' early season schedule is by no means overly taxing. There is a path for the Giants, if everything breaks correctly, to get out of the gate feeling pretty good about themselves and bank a couple of wins that they would not be able to if the schedule broke a different way. The early season schedule for the Giants and Jets is vastly different, very challenging for the Jets, not nearly as much so for the Giants. So an opportunity there to build some early season confidence and I think the Giants in the beginning any competitiveness that they're going to be able to show is going to be built on their defense they have more established NFL players on their defense they have at least one if not two bonafide NFL starters on each line of their defense Xavier McKinney 
the safety out of Alabama, really came into his own last season. He's been wearing the headset, Wink Martindale, and he's also going to be a big factor in any improvement that the Giants' defense shows this year. Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator, uh, historically has liked his safety to call the defensive signals. Oftentimes, most teams and the Giants, it's usually been the middle linebacker, but McKinney's a guy who looks like he's going to do it because of his position on the team and because of the fact that he's going to be on the field pretty much every single play. I mean, he has in a short amount of time turned into a leader on this defense. But if you think back to two years ago when the Giants almost, almost snuck into the playoffs with a 6-10 and record by nearly winning the NFC East, if it weren't for Doug Peterson throwing in the towel in the final game of the season. The thing I liked about that Giants season, not necessarily the 6-10 and 10 record, but there were two or three games on top of that that the Giants clearly could have won. If you looked at the Giants in Joe Judge's first season, and this is why it was so disconcerting that everything fell apart last year in his year number two, because I thought the best sign of Judge's first year, the 2020 season, was that the Giants' defense made this team far more competitive. Even the games that they lost that year. More often than not, they were in the game, they were playing competitive games, and there was just a sign of progress. Whereas the year before, Pat Shermer's last year, the record was awful, and they got blown out in more than half of their games. They were non-competitive. And then unfortunately for the Giants, everything fell apart last year. The defense was not nearly the same. The offense completely cratered once Daniel Jones went down for the final month and a half, and they weren't that great even before his neck injury cost him the last month of the season. But I think if you look at the Giants this year and where are the positives, where are the strengths of this Giants team starting this year, you have to start on the defensive side of the ball. And you have to start with Xavier McKinney, and he was asked at camp on how effective the defense can be for the Giants this season. Very effective. Uh, like, like I said before, I mean, we, we got a lot of playmakers on our defense, um, a lot of guys that could do a lot of things very well. Um, and, you know, we got a great defensive coordinator um, calling the calls. So um, it's going to be fun. Um, you're going to see a lot of guys flying around, a lot of guys making plays and getting after the ball. So, um, you know, that's something we pride ourselves on as a defense. So, um, you know, it, it's going to be fun. And, um, you know, we, we're still working um, and we're still getting better and improving, um, but, you know, we're going to have a lot of fun with it. It's going to be aggressive. He's going to try to utilize the aggressiveness and the athleticism of his top players on the defensive side. Wink Martindale, the defensive coordinator I'm talking about, that's his M.O., that's his history as a defensive coach in this league. The defensive side of the ball, I think, is a strength. Again, the bar is set extremely low because the offense has been putrid the last few seasons. big part of that is the offensive line. Is that improved? It appears to be the skill position players. The biggest problem with them last year was staying on the field. Galladay was extremely disappointing, whether he was hurt or not. Same with Kadarius Toney outside of the Dallas game. Saquon Barkley, how many more times can we talk about the New Orleans game? By the way, he didn't even rush for 100 yards in that game, but we're holding that game up as the gold standard for what's possible for this player. So the offense has a ways to go. And then... Very similar to our conversation about the Jets earlier in the show, and this is the way that the league is structured. It all filters to one man, and it all filters to Daniel Jones. Now, the jury for me, I, I think Jones can be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL, but I think that's his ceiling. And a lot of people will think that I'm silly for thinking his ceiling's even that high, but that's just how I feel. I think that Jones 
with his athleticism, with his size, with his arm strength, I do think that there's a path for him to be a top 15 quarterback in the NFL. The problem is he was the sixth overall pick in the draft. I feel like that's a disappointing result for somebody who was picked that high. And I feel like that's his ceiling. I don't think he's got top 10 potential. He certainly doesn't have top five potential. He has given no indication of either of those possible outcomes. I think he could be top 15. But then you look at teams in the NFL who have quarterbacks that settle in around like 15th, 16th. Like the first team that comes to mind is the Minnesota Vikings and Kirk Cousins. You know, Kirk Cousins has been a top 15 quarterback basically his entire career. And where has it gotten the Vikings? Some years they'll make the playoffs. Once in a while they'll win a playoff game. Some years they'll just miss the playoffs. You know, that's the ceiling for a team with a top 15 quarterback. Again, the anomaly for that type of team is the Tennessee Titans. And they've had a lot of success recently um, because of Mike Vrabel, their head coach, and because of Derrick Henry, their running back. They've had a lot of success winning games in the regular season and even in the playoffs with that structure. But we're talking about a league with 32 teams. And if Jones's ceiling is top 15 quarterback, then you can only point to one example of the 32 teams of a team that is competitive with a middle-of-the-road starting quarterback. And that's a problem. And that's why, okay, so let's say Daniel Jones does go out and hit a ceiling this year, and he's a top 15, top 14 quarterback in the NFL. And I think that's a reach, to be honest. I think he could get there eventually, but I don't think he's going to have enough time to do it with the Giants. So then what does that mean? That means he probably gets to keep his job, and he's probably the quarterback next season. And then where do you go from there? Are you going to build the rest of the team up around him to the point where you follow the Tennessee Titans model, that's a very, very difficult thing to count on because only one team in the NFL has done that. You want to tell me that the Baltimore Ravens have done that as well? I'll tell you that Lamar Jackson is a lot better than Daniel Jones or Ryan Tannehill. So you don't have a, you know, Zach Wilson, I personally don't think he's going to be a top 10 quarterback, but I'm not willing to sit here today and say it's not going to happen. You have to give the Jets quarterback more of an opportunity. He was picked second in the draft. Somebody saw something in him. And the infrastructure around Zach Wilson this year is greatly improved from what it was last year. So I don't personally think that Zach's going to reach those heights, but I'm not willing to sit here right now and say it's not going to happen. I'm willing to sit here right now and say it's not going to happen for Daniel Jones. Top 10, no. Top 5, absolutely not. Top 15, yes, I think he can get there if everything goes right. But the follow-up question to that is where does that get you? We're at the baseball a little later this afternoon. The Yankees are in St. Louis, so it's a 2-15 start. Frankie Montas, his first start with the Yanks against Adam Wainwright, not his first start with the St. Louis Cardinals for the 40-year-old with a 3.11 earned run average. And then the Mets and the Braves, the finale of their five-game weekend series at City Field. It is a 4-10 first pitch. The Mets are looking to win four out of five in this weekend set. 
And for the first time since July 7th of last year, they will send Jacob DeGrom to the mound. A good pitching matchup. DeGrom looked good in his first start. And Spencer Strider, who's 6-3 and three with a 2.79 ERA, is on the mound for the Atlanta Braves. The Mets with a five-and-a-half game lead right now over Atlanta for the lead in the National League East. And this is a big game. There is a very big difference. They just ticked off five of their meetings, of their 19 meetings this season. They will have by the end of the day today. And the opportunities for the Braves to cut into the Mets division lead are starting to run out, especially when you consider that the Mets at this point are the strongest, the strongest that they have been all season long. With Scherzer pitching the way he's pitching, with DeGrom back, with Diaz pitching the way he's pitching, with Carrasco pitching the way he's pitching, with Alonzo in that lineup, with Marte in that lineup, with Lindor in that lineup, and everything else that has gone into this excellent stretch of play since the All-Star break. So today, an opportunity for the Mets to end this series with a six-and-a-half game lead over Atlanta, which I think over the final two months of the regular season would be very, very difficult for the Braves to cut into. As far as the Yankees go, they just got to get back on track. You know, the Yankees... It seems like the sky is falling right now, but the Yankees were so great the first three months of the season that they really did build up a nice-sized buffer to withstand a tough stretch like this. Now, at some point, the Yankees need to end this tough stretch and get back to playing winning baseball. You don't have to play 700 baseball. That's the luxury that you gave yourself to withstand what you're going through right now, where the offense is struggling and Garrett Cole is struggling and the back end of the bullpen is struggling. And outside Aaron Judge, you're not getting a lot of offensive production, but you're missing Stanton. You're missing Anthony Rizzo right now. Andrew Benatendi has not fit in well going two for his first 25. So an opportunity for the Yankees to kind of right the ship today. Want to thank our guests during On the Tee, first hour of the show. David Young, great conversation with the father of one of the breakout stars of the PGA Tour, Cameron Young. That was fun. Also, David Behrman from ESPN.com, who always does a great job. And then Brendan Cuddy, who covers the Yankees for NJ.com as well. Uh, our producers, Harvey Cruz, Tom Bauer, great job by you. Have a great rest of the weekend, everyone. Larry Hardesty is coming up next. 